And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can catch all of my writings. Uh, I usually link to any major column I've written, but if you follow my Twitter feed, you'll be up to date with everything I'm working on and talking about. And my Twitter handle is at JakeJakeNY, at JakeJakeNY. And uh, I also have the pages on Facebook, and you can look me up there under Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Um, a few topics I want to talk about tonight uh, and today, and all these things that are, are, are going on right now, if you're listening to the original run of this broadcast on Monday. And that, of course, is this basically major summit right now that President Trump is hosting with Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, the leader of the opposition party, Benny Gantz as well, has also had a meeting with President Trump. And this is all as the president is releasing the details, finally, the the release of the so-called deal of the century, the Trump peace plan for Israel and the Palestinians. You know, one of the things they they always call Israeli-Palestinian peace plans Middle East peace plans, as if that's the whole Middle East. And I wonder about that. I know that's kind of, for the most part, it's probably just shorthand to save time. I don't think there's necessarily any nefarious... Uh, reasons behind that. But there are some things that you can get into trouble with if you continue to call Israel and the Israeli and the Palestinian issue Middle East peace, because while it is happening in really actually the Near East, for those of you who are sticklers on that kind of thing. But I feel like when you keep using that term, whether you're using it knowingly or not, when you keep using Middle East peace, when you're really just talking about Israel and its neighbors, or Israel, in this case, the Palestinians, I always fear that you're giving too much import to the Israeli-Palestinian issue as if that's the main problem in the Middle East. Uh, if you listen to the Novak Now program here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and if you've looked at a lot of my writings over the years, you know that I'm one of the not not small number of people. I'm one of the many people who have studied the region and studied the history who know that the main conflict in the Middle East, the Near East, and in the entire uh, part, in that entire part of the world is a conflict that's been going on for about 1,400 years. And that is the Sunni-Shia civil war. Ever since the death of the Prophet Muhammad, the war that's been going on within Islam about who is the rightful heir, who is the rightful caliph and then caliphate that came after Muhammad has been really the main war in that region that goes, that's, that's blows hot and cold over the, over the centuries. Right now it's, it's running pretty hot, uh, being that Iran is leader, the leader of the Shiite faction uh, of that Sunni Shia war and Saudi Arabia, the leader of the Sunni faction. It's blowing pretty hot right now as, as those things go. But it's pretty, it's pretty heavy right now. It's also running within the nation of Iraq. You know, we had a story er, uh, last week about how there were all these Iraqis that came out and protested U.S., the United States, and Israel. Well, it wasn't Iraqis. It was Shia Iraqis. You know, you've got to make that clear when you talk about Iraq. Iraq is about 60-40 Shia to Sunni, which was, you know, kind of an interesting fact when Saddam Hussein was running the country because he was a Sunni. Muslim ru- ruling a country that was majority Shiite, and that's what made the war between Iran and Iraq so problematic for him. And it's always been a reason why Iran has been so interested in Iraq, not just because they're physical neighbors. Um, so when you hear about these major protests in Iraq and all these thousands and thousands of, of Iraqis protesting against the United States and Israel, you can be sure, not that the Sunnis are big friends of Israel, and sometimes they're certainly not friends of the United States sometimes as well, but you can be sure you're talking about Shia Iraqis who are now completely under the influence of Iran. They've always been sort of somewhat 
emotionally connected to Iran, even when you had the Saddam Hussein regime. But now that Iraq is kind of a free-for-all situation, sadly, certainly Iran has control over the Shia population. And, and that's what's going on there. And that, of course, has a lot to do with Muqtada al-Sadr, the, the uh, big imam who is a Shia imam in Iraq and always has been a Shiite opponent of Sunnis in Iraq, whether it was Saddam Hussein or anyone else. So that's what's going on there. So again, I, when you talk about Israel and its peace plans or any peace plan that involves Israel and its Arab neighbors, or in this case, the Palestinians, to call it a Middle East peace plan, when the real Middle East peace plan, if it's ever going to be one, is going to have to deal with the Sunni-Shia problem much more than anything the Israelis are dealing with. As I've always felt that's a little bit misleading. But again, I don't think there's any real nefarious intent on the people who call it Middle East peace plan. I think they're just sort of just doing that as a shorthand. Um, but if you want to be a stickler, you can say it's a Near East peace plan. If you want to really be more accurate, you can just say it's an Israel-Palestinian peace plan, which is really the, the better thing to say. But sometimes it doesn't fit in a headline, and it doesn't fit in an easy script. Uh, nine out of ten of the news anchors who are going to be reading that on the teleprompter may get the word Palestinian wrong, or it might be too long for them to read, or they don't know where that is on a map. So you have to be careful with all of that. Um, anyway... Uh, you've got this plan being rolled out, and it's very, very, and, and from everything that we've been told, it's going to be really, really favorable to Israel, um, which is a good thing. Uh, you've also heard me say here many times on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I've written about it many times, when the United States shows its strong support of Israel over anybody else in the, in the Near East or Middle East or whatever you want to call it, it's good for peace because Israel is a democratic country because it shows the, the, its Arab neighbors that the United States is never going to waver from Israel when they get really, really close to, to one another. It's when American administrations start to distance themselves from Israel. That's when you have a real invitation for more violence and more problems, because it encourages those who want to attack Israel to think, well, maybe the Americans won't back the Israelis up so much and there won't be so much retribution. Let's go after them now, when their friends are turning their back on them a little bit. So... When that isn't happening, which is what, which is you know, which we're seeing right now, when we're seeing the Trump administration so favorable to Israel, we're seeing a good thing for everybody. And for those of you who say, "What about the Palestinians? Shouldn't the you know, administration be favorable to them?" Well, who are they going to be favorable to when you say be favorable to the Palestinians? To their leaders, the corrupt Fatah organization, which is still mostly a terrorist organization, and when it's not being terrorist, it's just stealing the money of its people, or the Hamas organization, which is a totally terrorist organization. How is that helpful to the Palestinians if the United States or anyone is, is, is recognizing and friendly to Hamas or Fatah? The answer is they're not. If there's any group of Palestinian people who want to actually live in peace and live in economic prosperity, you've got to stay away from Hamas and Fatah because both of them aren't interested in that. Both of them are basically interested in using their people as human bombs against Israel and human bombs against anybody. And when they're not interested in, in you know, and Fatah, who has some leaders who aren't as interested in that as the Hamas folks, they're stealing the money and building and helping to build terror tunnels or whatever they're doing with the money. So this is a good thing for humanity. It's a good thing for Israel because Israel's the only sane player in this game. And it's amazing that we even have to discuss the United States. How, in what way are they going to be favorable to what? To, to, the, to the Palestinians' terrorist aspirations? That's, how does that help the Palestinians? How does that help anything? How does that help peace? Um, it's very, very important for the American government because Europe will never do it, sadly. But the American government needs to say to the Palestinians, your leaders are basically terrorists and, and thugs and thieves. And the best thing for us to do to be favorable to you is to support Israel and for you to figure out how to make peace from there and realize that there's no, no thuggery and no terrorism and no corruption is going to get you peace. 
And since that who you, that's who you have as leaders, we're not going to be favorable to your leaders. That would be a great, great response. It's just like saying to, to, to criminals on the street, no, uh, we're not going to be favorable to you. We're going to lock you up so that you stop being criminals. And so everyone else in the neighborhood can live a peaceful life. And you're not doing anybody any favors if you're helpful to the criminals. And I've also written about this. When, when police, and this is happening in New York right now, when police and, 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 and politicians in major cities like New York City decide that they're going to turn the other way on small crimes, the broken windows and, and the jumping of the turnstiles, there's a, there's a, a lot of people mistake that as, oh, that's being so nice. That's being so kind. They're not going to be so tough on those poor neighborhoods and on those poor people, usually minorities. They're not going to be so tough on them. Isn't that nice? No, it's not nice. Because the overwhelming majority of those poor people and those minorities are not breaking windows or jumping turnstiles. And so by promoting and helping the people who do, they are putting first off, first and foremost, the other minority and poor people more in danger than you or I, unless you're a minority listening, and I hope you are. <laughs> they're not really helping those people. They're hurting those people. And this is a similar thing in the, in, in the Middle East. It's very similar. Anyway, there's an interesting question going on right now that I'd like to answer as quickly as I can, but as clearly as I can, about why now? Why is this plan that at the last time that there was a lot of major reporting about the peace plan, about the Trump-Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, the last time there was a major round of reporting about it, it was sort of after the last, of course, non-conclusive, inconclusive Israel-Israeli election back in September. And the reporting kind of went along the lines of it was kind of a consensus that now the Trump administration would wait until after the 2020 election, if they get reelected, to present this plan. But they decided to do it now, here early in 2020, 10 months before the election, and, or about 10 months. It'll be about nine months by the time everything gets rolled out and we see all the details. Why this is happening now? And I think there are a couple of reasons that you really need to look at. I think the biggest reason, and this is one that was under the radar for two reasons. One is it's just been so much other news out of the general Near East and Middle East. I understand why. And the second is because it moves against a certain narrative that, that the news media all over the world, but especially in America, has when it comes to Israel. If you missed it, it's okay if you missed it. But about two weeks ago, Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party came out with a statement saying that just like Netanyahu and Likud, they also support annexing, extending Israeli sovereignty is another way of saying it, over the Jordan Valley and over much of the West Bank and over the area we know as Area C. In other words, to put this in, in the most simple terms as possible, those parts of the West Bank where there are already a lot of Jewish settlements and Jewish towns, Israel will make officially part of the state of Israel. That's the policy that Benjamin Netanyahu has been promising. And now Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party have come out and saying, not only are they going to do that too, but promising to do it better than Netanyahu would. Now, to me, that was a tremendous reason for why this peace plan is going to be released now by the Trump administration. Because one of the things the Trump administration wanted to do was avoid being accused of or being... Yeah, accused of saying or the allegation that, that they're meddling in an election and in favor of Benjamin Netanyahu. So if it had only been the Likud party that was saying they want to annex these parts of the West Bank and then the Trump peace plan comes out saying that it supports the, annexing, the annexation of those parts of the West Bank, then you could very plausibly say well, the Trump administration is just helping out Benjamin Netanyahu, and this is a foreign in interference in, his, in Israel's elections, and isn't that reprehensible? As soon as, and I don't think that the Blue and White Party did this to help the Trump administration, but I think the Blue and White Party was seeing that there was some general support 
in the Israeli public. And the Blue and White Party is trying to pick off as many moderate and, 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 and somewhat right-wing voters as they possibly can for, away from Likud. So they decided, let's come out with this policy probably not realizing that that would certainly open the door to the Trump administration saying, hey, the two biggest parties in Israel, Likud and Blue and White, based on the results of the last two elections, those two biggest parties, which could form a government all on their own, just those two parties, they're both in favor of this annexation. So now, if we say we're in favor of it, no one can say that we're meddling in an election because both the, the two major parties that are supposedly opposing each other are for it. So we're not doing anything that splits the country down the middle. And that was... A real open door, which, of course, is not being reported. Why wasn't it reported? Again, I think the biggest reason is because it's just too complicated and and busy for American news media outlets. But remember, the American news media is still under the misbegotten notion that Israel is a left-wing country or that there's a major left-wing movement in Israel that's about even with the right wing, which is just demonstrably not true. Israel is basically, if you strip out the Arab party votes, as I've said many times, Israel is basically a 60-40 right-wing a country, which if you don't think that that's a big split, remember that it was the only two times in America in, in our lifetimes, for most of us listening to this program right now, where there's been that kind of a popular vote in this country was in the 1984 massive landslide for Ronald Reagan, where the country went about 60-40 for Ronald Reagan. I think officially it was 59-41 to 41 in the popular vote. And also in 1972, when there was a massive uh, run towards Richard Nixon. I don't want to talk necessarily about why those elections resulted in what they resulted in, but what I'm, I'm just using that as a, as, a, as a comparison. You've had election after election after election in Israel now, more than just the last two, where if you strip out the Arab party vote, and I, and I do that not because I'm, not, I'm disregarding the Arab right to vote. They, I'm doing that because the Arabs have decided to disregard their own right to vote. Not that they don't go vote, and sometimes their turnout is better than, than others. But the Arab members of the Knesset do not recognize the state of Israel as, as, as a sovereign state. <laughs> they don't. They're, they're in the Knesset to try to lobby for what they want to lobby for and get whatever benefits they can get, often for themselves. As members of Knesset, they get certain priorities. Uh, they get certain perks. But I think some of them are also looking to get some, some money and, and aid for their own people. I'm not, it's not all selfishness on their part. But I, you can't count them as being a, a faction of the state of Israel, left or right. They don't fit into either one's... They're, they're, they're square pegs and round holes. I'm not saying that they're not left or right. It's not that they're, that they're not a faction. They're just, they don't fit into the left-right uh, uh, equation. So, but the American news media believes that, that there's a big left-wing group in Israel that's on an even par with the right-wing, and that's just not true. It's just not true. It's one of the reasons why Blue and White has so much trouble forming a coalition, because they don't have enough people on their side. The left doesn't have more than 40% really of, of, of the electorate, and they need more than that to form a coalition. And the reason why Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu haven't been able to form a coalition is not because there's not enough right-wing members of the Knesset after the last two election results, it's because one particular party within the right-wing faction, Yisrael Beitenu, led by Vigdor Lieberman, doesn't want to join with Netanyahu because he's looking for a couple things just for his people. He wants an enforced Haredi draft, and he wants a more aggressive policy in Gaza. Two things that Netanyahu has not been willing to give him, and so we're at this impasse. And I've done many programs about that before. But the point is, is that Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party deciding that they also support the annexation, and again, that's a fancy word for extending Israeli sovereignty, making it part of the state of Israel, like, they, like the Golan Heights has been made part of the state of Israel, uh, to those West Bank areas, now allows the Trump administration to release this peace plan because it no longer makes it about 
splitting uh, uh, foreign election meddling. And that's a very big deal. And I don't think, by the way, that the Blue and White Party realized that they would be triggering that. I think that they thought, just like anybody else, uh, a lot of us uh, thought that the, that the peace plan wouldn't be re- uh, released until the Trump administration, if they got reelected in November, that, that it would happen then and only then. And I, also do, and I think that they were just thinking about how it would get them votes internally. Again, they're, they're trying to get a few of the right-wing voters who otherwise would vote for Likud or one of the other right-wing parties to vote for them. And so they're trying to out-right-wing them a little bit when it comes to annexing or extending Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank. But the unintended consequence, and I really do believe it was an unintended consequence on their part, was it opened the door for the Trump administration to release this plan now. There's another reason for it, too. Look, obviously, Donald Trump's running basically unopposed. I know that there's some wackos, and I call them wackos because it's really a waste of time to run against the incumbent president unless he is really, really weakened within his own party. And Donald Trump has strong internal poll numbers and always has really among Republicans since he's been president. Uh, he tweets all the time about how he has 95% support. It's probably more like 88 or 90%, but actually that's, that's historically strong. You would think that an incumbent president would have 100% support of the voters in his party. But actually, traditionally, it's more in the low 80s sometimes, even when they get reelected by a nice landslide uh, for their second term. And Donald Trump, even though I think he's puffing the number up a little bit, which is the way he, which is the way he does things, uh, I think it's more like 88 or 89%, which is very, very strong. So people running against him now are really kind of off their rockers if they're within the Republican Party. But even with that being the case, we're just about to the Iowa caucuses. The Iowa caucuses will be uh, on February 3rd, which is a week from this coming Tuesday. And the Iowa caucuses are really interesting. Iowa is, is a really interesting state for Republicans because it's one of those states that's not in the Deep South that still has a huge evangelical population among Republicans. Iowa's also a really interesting state. It doesn't get its due. You know, they get to be the first in the country most of the time when it comes to primaries and caucuses, and that gives them a lot of attention, so they certainly get attention. But what people forget about Iowa is it's a, it happens to be a swing state. Yes, it is. I know a lot of you might think, oh, of course, it's mostly a Republican state. It's not true. Barack Obama won Iowa twice. Bill Clinton won Iowa twice. Now, Donald Trump won it in 2016, and it wasn't that close. It wasn't super big landslide either. But so you might think, oh, this is just mostly a red state, but it isn't. What's interesting about Iowa is, however, the caucuses tell you a lot about how it's going to go uh, in November. Now, of course, Donald Trump's basically running unopposed. He's going to win the Iowa caucuses, obviously, among Republicans. But I think that he needs to start thinking about how he's going to cater and, 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 and get engaged again with the evangelical vote, because Donald Trump needs that evangelical vote to turn out in every state, whether it's Iowa, the Deep South, of course, and, and, and in those other swing states that we know very much about, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, where there are still some evangelicals. He needs to get them fired up. And by delivering a very pro-Israel peace plan around now, here late January, just before the Iowa caucuses, I think he gives the evangelicals a good marching tune, a choir, a, a, a little, some, some, some notes for the choir, music for the choir, and I think that really will help him. So I think that those are the two biggest reasons why this plan is coming out now. Um, and I think it's another reason, another good reason, and I don't think this is necessarily the reasoning to bring it out now, but another good thing that will come from this peace plan is that, of course, this is not a good thing, but it will lead to a good thing. The, the Palestinians, of course, have already rejected it sight unseen. Every time that there's a report that the peace plan is being worked on, let alone released, the Palestinians say we reject it. We haven't seen it, but we don't. We, you know, we, we, we reject it. It's the opposite of Nasev and Ishma. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, the the famous uh, legend among the Jewish people that 
God tells them, I'm going to give you the Torah. And instead of saying what's in it, they say, we'll take it. You know, we'll do it and then we'll, and then we'll read it. In other words, we're, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to take this. So it's the exact opposite with the Palestinians. They haven't heard of the plan. They haven't read the plan, but they're rejecting it. <laughs> so we're not going to do it, and then, and then maybe we'll read it. I, that's basically what the Palestinians are, so are doing. And I think when that comes out, it'll become very, very clear just where the Palestinians are in the world right now. I think a lot of people still think that the Palestinians are some kind of cause celeb in the Arab world. That's never really been true uh, for any extended period of time. There have been times when, Ar- when the Arabs have sort of really uh, connected with the Palestinians and times when they haven't. And right now, only Iran is connecting them in a way that they put money, their, their money where their mouths are. Right now, Iran is really the only, through, and, and usually, usually funneled through Qatar, which has become a satellite state of Iran in many ways. Uh, right now, Iran is really the only bankrolling entity for the Palestinians. That, that's for real. And I think once that becomes clear, because there are going to be some Sunni Arab countries that might say that they're okay with this peace plan, or they won't protest it. Either way, it'll make it very clear who the Palestinians' friends are and, um, and who, their, who their enemies are. And I think that that's going to be a good thing, actually. I think it'll be very good for the world to understand the Palestinians are no longer synonymous with Arabs or Muslims. They're only going to be synonymous or at least connected to the Iranians, and the Iranians are obviously a very, very troublesome group. So that's what I'm looking at from the peace plan. I want to say one more thing about Iowa before I move on to, to two more quick topics, and that is the Iowa – there was an interesting New York Times poll, and you know how I feel about polls. They're, they're very, it's tough for them to be accurate, and statewide polls are even tougher to be accurate because people – move around within a state, uh, from state to state. And, and so if you're, na- if you're taking a national poll and I move from Iowa to California and I, and I vote one way, then the national poll is still accurate. It doesn't matter what state you're in. But of course, all American elections for president are state by state. So it's a little rough. However, I do think it's interesting that the New York Times released a poll on Sunday that showed Trump in Iowa, just in Iowa, ahead of every single Democrat candidate for president. And that should be very telling for everyone. That tells you that here is Iowa, a state that's been flooded with the Democrats for weeks and weeks and weeks and really months now. And the people of Iowa have seen the Democratic candidates much more and heard from them much more than the rest of the country, with the possible exception of New Hampshire, which is the next primary a week later. And what have those those voters told us? They've told us they've seen these Democrat candidates, and the more that they see them, they don't like them. When you ask, when you poll in America right now, Donald Trump versus generic Democrat, generic Democrat wins in the national polls. Again, whether that means that that, that candidate, that, that made-believe candidate would win in the Electoral College is another discussion. But the thing is, there's no such thing as generic candidate, not in any election. No such thing. Every candidate has his or her qualities and, 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 and liabilities and personalities, and when people get to see that, that's when they make their decision. And what we're seeing in that poll now is that when people actually see the Democrats, then, and they see that there's no such thing as a Demo- as generic Democrat anymore, they're supporting Trump. And that's very, very interesting. So I just want you to keep your eye on that. Uh, another thing to keep your eye on, just developing in the last few days, incredible story. Uh, an eight-year-old Palestinian boy went missing uh, in East Jerusalem, I believe it was, on Friday the Israeli authorities, firefighters, police were on a very frantic search for him. They found him early Saturday morning at the bottom of a flooded cistern because there's been a lot of rain in Israel lately. Clearly, he fell into it and drowned, something like that. And some troublemaker Palestinians tweeted out the false accusation 
that this was a murder, that the set, that Jewish settlers grabbed this boy and killed him. Of course, there's no evidence of that. It's not true. It's, it absolutely is an accidental drowning. And then this woman who has been a, a, a part of the Palestinian Authority leadership for a long time, Hanan Shrari, if you've watched CNN over the years, you see her, you've seen her all the time. She retweeted that, and then she decided to admit, oh, yeah, sorry I tweeted that. I, there's no evidence that there was a murder. But before that could happen, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib decided to retweet that herself and also spread that literal blood libel. You know, I said to my daughter, it's interesting how the blood libel hasn't even changed its narrative. Maybe they could come up with something else to accuse the Jews of. But we're still at the killing of a non-Jewish boy as the main narrative for for blood libels in the world these days. Uh, And she apparently erased the tweet and deleted the tweet. I'm talking about Congresswoman Tlaib, but... I have not heard her apologize yet. And even Jason Greenblatt, who's the head of the ADL, and you've heard me here on, Nachum, on the Nachum Siegel Network on Novak Now talk about my problems with the Anti-Defamation League. But even he, and it must have hurt him because he's basically a Democrat and a Democrat Party operative. Even he came out with a, uh, a statement. Again, Jonathan Greenblatt, I'm sorry, that's his first name. Jonathan, he came out with a statement saying Tlaib you know, should be uh, scolded for this. And she needs to apologize. As far as I know now, she has not yet apologized. I've been looking at her Twitter feed. No apology. So she promotes this blood libel. And blood libel is a real problem for Tlaib. Because remember, she and Elon Omar wanted to go to that trip to Israel uh, last year, sponsored by that same organization that had promoted blood libel-type literature on their website in the past. You know, and I, I keep saying to people that Talaib and Omar were not banned from Israel. They were just banned. That trip was banned. That organization was banned. If they wanted to come individually with another group or with something else, they were certainly welcome. So it's not right or accurate to say they're banned from Israel. They just can't come with that group that supports blood libels and other anti-Israel propaganda and anti-Semitic propaganda. But she hasn't learned her lesson, and so she tweeted that out as well and wasn't that lovely. Um, one more thing that I want to get to that's very, very important to understand before, we, before the end of this program, and that is the Jeff Bezos story, which has been a really interesting story for me for more than a year. If you remember some parts of his phone with lewd pictures that he had sent to his girlfriend, and in this case it was his mistress, a woman that he was cheating on his wife with, got out about a year ago. It led to the divorce with Mackenzie Bezos, who's now the richest woman in the world because she got about, you know, control of about half of his wealth. Um, and, and all of that, all of that came out. And Jeff Bezos started to promote this, this theory of his that it was the Saudis who hacked his phone and that's how these pictures got out, which I really always kind of thought was laughable. It's not really their style. And then we heard reports that were somewhat credible that the actual pictures came out from the brother of the mistress, this woman that, that Bezos was cheating with and he's still apparently with, although I don't think this relationship has much longer to go and you'll understand why in a second. The brother was the one who had supplied the pictures to the public, and it kind of leaked those public. And we sort all, all of us kind of thought of scenarios: oh, maybe they were visiting at his house, and he grabbed Bezos's phone or something like that. Well, it's nothing like that. Turns out, Friday night we learned in a report from the Wall Street Journal that prosecutors have reported that it was the girlfriend who sent the pictures to her brother to try to help him out so that he could sell those pictures or maybe blackmail the boyfriend. I mean, it's just an incredibly sordid story all the way around. But remember, this comes after weeks and weeks and weeks of Bezos promoting the Saudi theory and even getting the U.N. to rubber stamp an investigation that he paid for. It wasn't a U.N. investigation that sort of, quote, proved that the Saudis hacked his phone. This was the level that Bezos was willing to go to to cover up the truth, his embarrassment or whatever it was. Uh, And it was just 
more than a little pathetic. And remember, Bezos has a little beef with the Saudis because their murder, most likely murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a contributing editorial columnist and wasn't even a journalist because those columns were written for him by somebody else, the Qatari embassy, by the way, uh, brought that fact out. When they killed him, it became obvious that the Khashoggi was really just an operative and not a writer, and that embarrassed the Washington Post as well, which Bezos owns. So two things that Bezos did to try to cover up his own embarrassment, kind of blowing up in his face, very, very strange scenario. Uh, it's been a re- weird week. Maybe it'll be even weirder, weirder, and we'll talk about it then at the end of next week. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.